top U.S. diplomats are back after a quick visit to Mexico. They hope to reach some kind of agreement on immigration. It's Thursday, December 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, scientists say this year will be the hottest one on record, and they say climate change is the reason. A year like this would not have occurred without the trillion tons of carbon that we've put into the atmosphere over the last century. Also this hour, political strategists believe Arizona is the next battleground over abortion and reproductive rights advocates are ready. Our court shouldn't be deciding these things. These decisions should be between a pregnant person and their trusted medical provider. And why many retailers are now adding shipping fees for mail-in returns. In sports, Bruins win rainy near 50 today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Israel appears to be cracking down on one of the ways it says Hamas is being funded. NPR's Jason DeRose reports. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, says five money-changing offices in the West Bank have been named as terrorist organizations. He says the offices transferred money to Hamas and the group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. After the defense minister signed the order declaring them terrorist organizations, Israeli forces raided nine currency exchange branches in the West Bank, according to Gallant. He says authorities confiscated 10 million shekels during the raids. That's the equivalent of nearly $2.8 million. Gallant says security forces also arrested 21 Palestinians suspected of transferring funds to the terrorist organizations. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Texas National Guard responded to a video obtained by Texas Public Radio last week. It appears to show Guard members ignoring cries for help from a woman and child crossing the water of the Rio Grande. Now, Human Rights Watch is responding to the agency statement. Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa reports. In a statement, officials with the Texas Military Department said they saw, quote, no signs of incapacitation. The woman, who appears to be in danger of drowning, can be heard saying in the video that she could no longer walk. Eyewitnesses said both woman and child, quote, went under for a moment as guards watched. Ari Sawyer is U.S. border researcher for Human Rights Watch. Um, ignoring that woman and her baby was wrong on just a basic human level. At what point would they have intervened when her baby was already drowning? Two migrants drowned in the Rio Grande River earlier this month. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is facing criticism. She was asked yesterday by a New Hampshire voter to discuss the cause of the U.S. Civil War. She did not mention slavery in the response. Haley did say the Civil War was about the freedoms of what people could and couldn't do. The voter told Haley he was astonished that she failed to discuss slavery. Haley asked the voter a question. What do you want me to say about slavery? The voter said he had gotten his answer. The Michigan Supreme Court has turned away a challenge to keep Donald Trump off the state's presidential primary ballot. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta says a lower court ruling will stay in place. The Michigan Supreme Court, which is the state's highest court, in an unsigned order, it refused to review lower court decisions. And those decisions said there's really no case to look at unless Trump becomes the Republican nominee. That is, Republicans have to choose their nominee before the judicial branch gets involved. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled earlier this month Trump could not appear on that state's primary ballot because his actions around January 6th amounted to insurrection. It's NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Leaders from the state and the city of Cambridge will meet with the public tonight to answer questions about a new overflow family shelter. The site at an old courthouse is expected to remain open through the winter. It can house about 70 families a night, but is only about a third full right now. State Representative Mike Connolly of Cambridge says he's heard very few complaints about the site since it opened Friday. The number one question I've heard from constituents here in Cambridge is how can I help? Where can I donate? How can I express my support to let these families know that they're welcome? Connolly says he hopes to brainstorm around those questions at tonight's virtual meeting. The largest health system in Massachusetts is reinstating masking requirements. Mass General Brigham will require its employees to wear masks in all of its clinical care locations starting next Tuesday. Patients will be strongly encouraged to wear masks. Hospital officials tell the Boston Business Journal they're reinstating the requirement as COVID and flu cases rise. Earlier this month, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute reinstated its mask mandate for staff and patients. The MBTA expects to roll out plans for a reduced fare program for low-income riders in the new year. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains how it would work. The program would be available to approved low-income commuters between the ages of 26 and 64. The T's director of fare policy, Stephen Povich, says that's an estimated 60,000 people. Riders who buy monthly passes would see significant savings for a link pass purchaser, $720 a year. And for someone who's riding the commuter rail, it could be as much as thousands of dollars. He adds, this is something done by many other U.S. transit systems. Six of the top 10 agencies offer a low-income fare program. Most of them are at half price and most of them are at 200% of the federal poverty line. That's about $30,000 for a single person or $60,000 for a household of four. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are raising concerns about the company that provides health care for the state's prison system. They're asking the CEO of WellPath to answer questions about the company as its contract with the state comes up for renewal next year. The senators say that patients had time-sensitive health care delayed. They also claim staff failed to follow physicians' treatment plans. The man accused in a deadly car crash at the Apple store in Hingham is being ordered to undergo a mental health evaluation. The driver is charged with driving his car through the storefront in 2022. One person died and more than 20 others were hurt. He's pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors say he's failed to keep in contact with police, which was a term of his release. He was jailed earlier this year for a similar violation. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. The Bruins snapped their four-game losing streak last night. They beat the Sabres 4-1 to in Buffalo. The Bees' next game is Saturday. Later this morning, Boston College will take on SMU in the Wasabi Fenway Bowl. It's the Eagles' first time playing in that game. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Detroit Pistons. Rain for a good part of the day today. It'll be near 50. Overcast tonight, and we may see a lingering shower. Temperatures will be in the 40s. Cloudy with another chance for rain tomorrow, mid-40s. More rain possible on Saturday, otherwise cloudy in the upper 40s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C. Roughly two and a half million migrants showed up at the U.S. border this year. That was a historic number. And it's created a humanitarian crisis for the crowds of people hoping for refuge and opportunity in the United States. It's also posing political dilemmas for the Biden administration. Yesterday, senior White House officials traveled to meet with the president of Mexico to discuss immigration and the border. NPR's Jasmine Garst is in Mexico City to cover those discussions, and she joins us now. Jasmine, it's good to have you with us. Good morning. So, Jasmine, what did U.S. officials hope to achieve with this visit? Well, we know the U.S. is seeking certain commitments, like Mexico further securing its own southern border with Guatemala, like making migrant transit up north to the U.S. more difficult. Uh, This meeting was held between Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. But just to show how much of a priority this is for the Biden administration, the White House also sent other key players in U.S. border policy, like Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorgas and Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall. Mm-hmm. And how did the Mexican president respond to these conversations, to these discussions? President López Obrador has said he's willing to work with the U.S., but yesterday he reiterated his belief that deterrence alone at the border will not work. He wants the U.S. to address the root causes of immigration, like poverty, and politics. He's been calling for the U.S. to ease sanctions on Cuba and on Venezuela, Venezuela being one of the countries where many of the migrants are coming from. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not that would happen in an election year seems unlikely. And elections, Jasmine, you know, my day job is covering the White House, and I imagine (laughs) that there are a lot of political pressures at at play. There's a sense of urgency right now. Absolutely. Look, Biden spoke to the Mexican president just last week on this issue. There is a sense of pressure on many fronts. Republicans in Congress are demanding stricter immigration policies in exchange for aid to Ukraine and Israel. At the border and in cities throughout the U.S., many migrants are facing horrific conditions, which has led to intense criticism of Biden's immigration policies from both Republicans and Democrats. In an election year, that's a harsh political reality. Yeah. And can we expect then any change in policy, you think, anytime soon? Yeah, I think so. Even as soon as next month, Congress is back in session and Republicans will continue asking for things like making it even more difficult to get asylum at the border and more deportations. Um, I've spoken to advocates who worry that the U.S. could return to Trump-era policies when asylum seekers were turned away without a hearing. And when it comes to involving Mexico, advocates have real concerns about human rights violations. I mean, for years, we've been hearing reports of migrants being abused, kidnapped, and killed while trying to get through Mexico and seek asylum in the U.S. Now, the White House has said and repeated this week that it remains committed to protecting the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. All right, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Jasmine Garst is NPR's immigration correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The war in Gaza is reshaping Israeli politics. It ended an effort by Benjamin Netanyahu's government to overhaul the judiciary, which many in Israel saw as an attempt to break the country's democracy. But as NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Jerusalem, some who protested the legislation worried the threat could return. 
This year, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government pushed for something called judicial reform. It was a dry-sounding package of legislation that convulsed the country. Many Israelis were so worried about the impact on their democracy, they took to the streets in the hundreds of thousands. It was a political awakening. One of the architects of the reform is Sima Rothman, and he has this message. When you talk about the judicial reform, I think it's dead. Rothman chairs the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. This is a huge about-face. But Rothman says, with the country at war, it's time for unity. I hope and I am certain that when the soldiers and their families will come back from the, the war, um, they will look at their elected officials and they will say, please stop stupid fights. Many still distrust this government and fear that when the war ends, it could try again. Itzhak Burke is a retired university professor. I met at a recent anti-government rally in Tel Aviv. Until they're gone from power, nothing is dead. They're working on it constantly. Critics say the government wants to control the courts, do erode minority rights, make it harder to fight official corruption, and pave the way for the annexation of the West Bank. And the fights aren't over. The government, which includes conservative religious parties, is still jockeying for control over Supreme Court appointments, according to Israeli media. This infuriates Gigi Levy-Weiss. Have we learned nothing? Levy-Weiss is a well-known venture capitalist and a member of Brothers and Sisters in Arms, a group of military reservists who helped lead this year's pro-democracy protests. How can it be that you're still thinking about how do I get what I want in this period? And the answer is that I think this is a government that is not thinking about its people. This is a government that is still busy with power grabs. My name is uh, Noah Sapat, and I am the executive director of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. Which is essentially Israel's ACLU. The government claims it wants to reform the judiciary because the institution is unaccountable. But Satat says the real goal is to weaken the court's ability to challenge government and parliamentary action. The idea was to remove the checks and balances, which were very poor to begin with, and permit any government legislation. Sadat says the system here is vulnerable to these kinds of tactics. In Israel, we have no constitution. We have only one house of parliament. We have the very, very weak separation between the executive branch and the legislative branch. So the judicial system is really the main or even the only check and balance on government power. And Sadat says the government is working on at least several dozen other bills to undermine the democratic system. In Israel, candidates can be banned from running for office if they've expressed support for terrorism. Satat worries that the government will try to expand the definition of support to disqualify Palestinian political leaders. To ban some of the political representation would be disastrous, both in the sense that it would change the political system altogether, but also because any minority that is not represented becomes radicalized. So much has changed in Israel since October 7th including brothers and sisters in arms. On the day of the attack, the group pivoted away from protests against the judicial overhaul and rushed to rescue survivors. Like other volunteer groups, brothers and sisters filled a vacuum in the early days of the war, when the government was not only caught by surprise, but also slow to respond. Ronan Kohler is a former submarine captain, a founding member of the group. He says brothers and sisters has created 25 kindergartens in hotels where war evacuees are living. Essentially, it's, it's a room in the hotel we equipped with toys and, you know, padded walls. And we hired a teacher. It's not very expensive. It's not very complicated. 
Ann Kohler says members of Brothers and Sisters are thinking about other ways that they can affect change in Israel. I think what I really would like to see is, is having some of our people as part of the Knesset. Running for office. Running for office. I think it's inevitable because this is the practical, pragmatic way to influence. Such is the political evolution here in Israel. What many say began as a government attempt to undermine democracy may now inspire people to challenge that same government at the ballot box. Elections could come as early as next year. Frank Langford, NPR News, Jerusalem. Online shopping. It's convenient until you got to return something. Yeah, and if you've got a holiday gift this year that you don't really want, well, you may find that more stores are charging fees or just making it plain harder for customers to send something back. David Swartz is an analyst with Morningstar. He says retailers pay a big price for free returns. A lot of brands are suffering from returns. Stores took back $743 billion in returned merchandise this year. The National Retail Federation says that's almost 15 percent of the total sales. And Swartz says a lot of that stuff will not go back on the shelf. Many products that are shipped back to stores are actually not resold. Uh, They're actually destroyed. That makes returns costly for stores and the planet, Swartz says, since so many of those goods are destined for landfills. Major retailers like Macy's and Amazon have tightened their return policies, but another analyst, Sucharita Kadali, says she won't be surprised if they loosen up again. I don't see strict return policies lasting for that long. It's a pendulum that swings back and forth. It depends on economic sentiment, consumer confidence, whether or not the retailer is financially well positioned or not, how much inventory they have in stock, et cetera, et cetera. And Kadali, who's an e-commerce expert at Forrester, says online shops are much more likely to charge for returns. I generally don't see restocking fees for physical stores. So her advice for the next holiday season? Shop at a brick-and-mortar store and check the return policy before you buy anything. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Endangered Species Act was signed 50 years ago today. Critics say it needs crucial updates to make it protect whole ecosystems instead of just specific species. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Native people have been historically excluded from so many professions and none more so than the ranks of federal judges. Now, two Native women have been confirmed as judges on the federal bench, one in Oklahoma and one in Hawaii. Advocates say it's a huge step forward in representation. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. People in the Pioneer Valley can now use their transit cards to access online materials from the public library. That includes ebooks and audiobooks to read and listen to during their commute. The move is part of the Browse, Borrow, Board pilot program. It started in Boston earlier this year. Those behind the initiative say its goal is to reach writers that are not already familiar with their library's offerings. Rainy and windy today with a high near 50. More showers likely tonight as it falls to the mid-40s. Cloudy tomorrow with a good chance of rain again. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Total Wine and More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list. From a Cabernet to single-barrel bourbon. TotalWine.com. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Available to adults 21 or older. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Now, as hosts of this program, we usually say our names at the top of each story, but now we want to take a moment and highlight the names that you don't usually hear on this show. We're talking about the talented and sleep-deprived editors and producers who bring you Morning Edition every single day. Here are some of their favorite stories of 2023. I'm Claire Marashima. This year, I looked into quirky classes, including sheep management at the University of Maryland. Students are paired with a pregnant you to care for, and Professor Sarah Balcom said that they go to great lengths to see the baby lambs for the first time. They have told me stories of waking up in the middle of the night and driving 45 minutes and trying hard not to speed because you're never quite sure if the cop's going to believe you that you're going to the birth of your lamb. This class stuck with me because it's so different from the education I had growing up. One student told me the hands-on format helped with her learning disabilities. Hey, I'm Lindsay Toddy. I'm a producer with Morning Edition. This summer, there was a social media trend where people were talking about a movie called Zapotha. The idea was that it was this 80s cult classic horror movie. But here's the thing. The movie doesn't exist. It all started with a musician in the United Kingdom named Emily Jeffrey. She got her TikTok followers to pretend they were fans of this old movie called Zapotha and posts about it online, spreading the music she wrote as part of its soundtrack. 
Now, Jeffrey seemed to have this whole movie cooked up in her imagination, and she brought her fans in on the fun. It'd be like the villain. Oh my god, it'd be the villain showing up at the end and like looking up at the camera after you think that they've like died. And then the end credits would roll, and it would be so cool, and then the song plays out as the credits are rolling. That's totally what it would be. This just shows that people on the internet will create a community around just about anything. It was definitely the most fun story I worked on this year. I'm Adam Bierne, and here at Morning Edition, sometimes we make stories happen that seem impossible to pull off when we first think of them. That happened in March, when, to mark the anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq, we brought together a US pilot who dropped bombs on Baghdad with a former resident of the city. Here's Shima Khalil and Steve Ankerstar. Are you hopeful that things are going to be better in 20, 30 years from now between U.S. and Iraqi relations? Or are are you pessimistic in that so much damage has been done that there might not be a good way forward in the future? I think I have hope because if you don't have hope, we can't live. So as much as we can open spaces for learning from each other, I think this will make change. My name is Milton Guevara. In September, I traveled with a Morning Edition team to a refugee camp in Adre, Chad. We were there to speak with people who fled their homes in Sudan because of the civil war. Salah Amira Omar was one of them. I built all my life to make generation and make yours and did my best and forced it to leave my house. His story really stuck with me. Unfortunately, the war in Sudan continues to kill and displace thousands of people. My name's Julie Devenbrock. I'm a producer, and the most memorable story I worked on this year was about writer Elizabeth Rush's book, The Quickening, which chronicles her journey to Antarctica and motherhood. As someone who'd been covering climate change for years, Rush knew that seeing the melting ice might change her mind about bringing a child into this unstable world. But still, she went. I love this conversation with Rush because it was a rare story of hope and survival in a time that can feel really apocalyptic and scary. There are many people on this planet who have lived through many different kinds of endings before. I think of the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas, like their worlds have been ending for five centuries. And at some level, of course, climate change is a different scale of transition. But I also think that these kinds of earth transformations have happened before, and there's a lot of wisdom in how to survive them. This is Jan Johnson. The actor who played Dwight in The Office knows it's a little unexpected to hear him talk about finding meaning in life. But when Rain Wilson spoke to Rachel Martin about a spiritual revolution and his book Soul Boom, he shared an anecdote that I'm taking to heart right about now. Here he is talking about what he called a transformative moment with the man behind the film classic My Dinner with Andre. 
I um, was fortunate as an actor to study with the great acting teacher, Andre Gregory, and he would meet with the students, and I had tea with him once, and he said, how are you doing, Rain? And I said, you know, Andre, I'm just feeling so cynical. I'm feeling pessimistic. The world is a pile of crap, and it's getting worse. And I'll never forget this experience. He grabbed my arm. I mean, even back then, he was like 80 years old. Now he's like 110. He grabbed my arm like a vice, and he looked into my eyes, and he said, stop it. Don't do it. Don't be cynical. If you're cynical, they win. You have to keep hope alive. Some of the brilliant and dedicated staff of Morning Edition. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Scientists say 2023 was the hottest year on record, and now they're predicting 2024 will be even worse. We'll look at what that might mean for the weather in the coming year. It's 7.29. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Scientists say 2023 is expected to be the hottest year ever recorded. NPR's Lauren Summer has more. Over the summer, Phoenix spent 31 days above 110 degrees. More than 500 people died in the area from heat-related causes. China, Southern Europe, Mexico all saw extreme heat waves. There were also heat waves in the ocean. In July, the water off Florida hit 100 degrees. Corals really can't survive that temperature, and there was a major die-off on the reef there. The Biden administration and Mexico's government say yesterday's talks on border security and migration were productive. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was among those who traveled to Mexico City for meetings with Mexico's president. Neither side offered much detail on what might be done to reduce the flow of migrants arriving each day at the U.S. southern border. Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez of Texas was asked about it. We have folks who think it should be really easy to come to our southern border and ask for asylum and get into the country. And then you have folks who feel the way I do that think that we should be much stricter on our southern border. But clearly what's happening now is disgraceful. To have a policy that invites you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to come into our southern border, I don't care how you look at it, it's just wrong. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A recent WBUR investigation found Massachusetts has more than 2,000 empty, subsidized apartments across the state. Now WBUR has found the state has largely failed to enforce its own rules to fill those units. More now from WBUR's Todd Wallach. The state fined local housing agencies more than $4 million for failing to lease subsidized apartments without an excuse over the past four years. But the state never collected most of that money. That's a concern, says Doug Howgate of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Association. If you're going to have a rule for what happens when people don't do what they're supposed to and you don't follow through on it, it creates a host of inefficiencies and, and challenges for whatever system you're trying to implement. State housing officials say they are starting to automatically deduct fines from money they give local housing authorities this year. They hope that pushes agencies to fill the apartments or provide a good reason why they can't. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. The site of a former coal power plant on Salem Harbor could soon be home to the state's second offshore wind port. The Massachusetts Clean Energy Center is expected to buy the site from a Florida shipping company in the coming weeks. Under the $30 million deal, the center would then lease the property back to the state. Officials say the plan is another step toward meeting the state's clean energy goals. As we head into the darker, colder season in New England, healthcare providers say it's more important than ever to eat well, stay active, and get outside if you can. Those activities can sometimes ease symptoms of seasonal affective disorder. Dr. Kevin Simon is Boston's chief behavioral health officer. He told WBUR's Radio Boston it's important to recognize the difference between a clinical issue and holiday stress or sadness. However, if that sadness is combined with loss of interest in the things that you used to find pleasurable. Insomnia or hypersomnia, sleeping too much, or hyperphagia, eating too much, feelings of guilt, then that could be a clinical diagnosis. Simon says light therapy is also considered a viable treatment for seasonal affective disorder. It's 733. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium. Purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins beat the Sabres 4-1 last night in Buffalo. The Bees' next game is Saturday at the Garden. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Detroit Pistons. Cloudy with a high near 50 today. Rain is likely, along with gusty winds. Mid-40s tonight and the showers continue. Cloudy with a chance of rain again tomorrow. High temperatures will be in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Endangered Species Act turns 50 today. It was born out of a growing realization in the Nixon era that America could lose its wildlife to, quote-unquote, progress. I spoke with Deborah Sivas, a professor of environmental law at Stanford University. She talked about what the act was intended to do. 
So the purpose of the ESA was to really triage species that were on the brink of extinction. And when it was adopted in the 1970s, there were plenty of species that were facing extinction. And the idea is to list them and give them additional protection with the hope that the populations will recover and they will eventually come off of the list. So I think of it as like an emergency room in a hospital where you bring the species into protection, you patch them up, you patch the populations up, and then, you know, hopefully they go on and, and uh, survive and thrive. Sivas points out that ESA was signed before lawmakers were really aware of climate change. He says the law needs to be updated. Over the years, especially in the last two to three decades, it's really been under constant assault, right? It changes when a different presidential administration comes in or a, a shift in Congress. And, um, and it's, it's sort of in a constant battle to survive. And given how polarized we are, I question whether it can survive. But right now, you know, right now it's being protected by champions in the, in, both in the White House and the, and the Congress. But I think its future remains precarious. If you could update one part of the Endangered Species Act, what would it be? Well, as I mentioned, there's concerns about how it interacts with climate change. So that, that, and you, you need to think carefully about how to do that. But to me, the, one of the things that is really needed is we focus on species, and that was what was in the minds of Congress back in the 1970s. You know, there were certain species that were iconic, like the bald eagle and others. But really, we need to focus on ecosystems and the habitat where the species lives. So uh, there have been a, lots of proposals to think about how we could reform the ESA to really make it an ecosystem protection law as opposed to just a species protection law. How would things change if it was indeed changed to ecosystems as opposed to just species? Well, it would be more reflective of conservation biology, the science behind it, right? Which is so often what we do now is we have a species that gets listed and they really provide a proxy for protection of a lar larger ecosystem. So the example I always give back in the 1990s is the northern spotted owl. And yes, were people concerned about the owl? Yes, but really it was used as a proxy to protect old growth forests in the Northwest, right? But that seems like it's not really the scientifically correct. We should be looking at the whole ecosystem and what that ecosystem needs in terms of protection. I know that there are a lot of names on uh, the list. Uh, what What is your favorite species that has been saved or helped by the ESA? Here in California, one of the my favorites is the condor. So we I live not too far from Pinnacles National Park, which is a uh, a habitat for condor and, you know, have hiked up there and there are these majestic birds. And they were also brought back in California from the brink of extinction through ESA type protections. Condor's a good one. I live in California too. Condor okay. is definitely a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is just kind of a, a, a random question on my part. Of, of all the creatures on the list, if you could just talk to one, Deborah, which one would it be and what would you want to know? <laughs> Um, well, I'm particularly fond of the gray wolves, and really they've made a comeback in the West. We've, under the Endangered Species Act, they, they've been protected. They're now less protected than they were, but they were protected for many years and reintroduced into Yellowstone. And, as, and, and if you live out West, you know that they've really radiated out from Yellowstone all the way into California, and they just roam all over the landscape, right? And which is one of the reasons why they're in trouble, because they interact with humans, you know, everywhere they go. But um, I would, I would love to be, be in their shoes or their paws, I guess. Right? Or paws. Or <laughs> in their this paws, case, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> De Deborah Sivas, professor of environmental law at Stanford Law School. Uh, Deborah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. 
The issue of abortion is mobilizing voters across the country, and Democrats have largely been seeing the benefits ever since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. They have been pushing to codify abortion access into state law, and political strategists are zeroing in on Arizona as the next battleground. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports. Arizonans looking to expand access to abortion in the Grand Canyon state are already gathering outside courthouses. They were there because the state Supreme Court is weighing abortion restrictions. But they're not just protesting outside the court. They're hard at work mobilizing to get a ballot initiative that would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. We knew we needed to do something for 2024. That's Chris Love, a senior advisor of Planned Parenthood of Arizona, one of the organizations behind the initiative. We are well ahead of where we anticipated we would be. And we are on track to, you know, producing about 800,000 signatures when all is said and done by July 3rd. If approved by voters, the constitutional amendment would override whatever conclusion the state Supreme Court comes to. That's the point, right? Our court shouldn't be deciding any of these things. These decisions should be between a, a pregnant person and their trusted medical provider. Those on the other side are gearing up, too. Groups like Students for Life of America, who want to restrict abortion access, are preparing to fight the efforts in Arizona. These young people can be reached um, and they can vote pro-life, but we have to speak to them and be real with them about what's really at stake. That's Kristen Hawkins, executive director of Students for Life of America. Hawkins said they plan to increase their presence on college campuses in the state and target ads at younger voters. Young voters tend to favor abortion rights, but recent polling shows that the issue can still motivate young conservatives. Far too often, the Republican pundits and even Republican campaigns, they just fail to reach out to this demographic, thinking that it's a lost cause. By winning um, a couple more percentage points of young people, um, that can shift the entire election. And that can certainly be the case in the swing state of Arizona. In 2020, President Biden won the state by just 10,000 votes. And key Senate and House races that could determine who controls Congress will be on the ballot. And specifically, this path runs straight through Arizona. That's Danny Wang. She's the deputy director for campaign communications at EMILY's List, which helps elect Democratic women who support abortion rights. She says voters are eager to defend abortion protections. I think they're um, incredibly invigorated to go out to the ballot box because it doesn't matter if you live in a state where abortion is constitutionally protected or if you live in Arizona where the fate rests on this upcoming election. Abortion-related initiatives have proved to be a major voter mobilizer. Democrats have seen these wins in states like Montana, Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio over the last two years. And organizers hope Arizona is next. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20, Chef Jose Andres recently returned from a visit to Gaza, where his World Central Kitchen provided more than 12 million meals. Now he's calling for more humanitarian aid to the region. It's 743. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The World Health Organization warns that disease may kill more people in Gaza than Israel's offensive as the area's health care system is on the verge of collapse. Texas officials say they've arrested nearly 10,000 people on trespassing charges at the border since 2021. And the New York Times is suing the companies behind ChatGPT for using copyrighted stories to train the AI chatbot. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. Rain and near 50 today, more showers and mid-40s tonight, cloudy with more rain possible tomorrow in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. Boston-based venture capital firm Visible Hands says it's laying off seven people. That's half of its workforce. Visible Hands co-founder tells the Boston Business Journal the layoffs were a cautious response to market volatility. Maple syrup production is big business across New England. New technologies are allowing producers to get more sap out of each tree. Now researchers are studying the long-term sustainability of the industry. Howard Weiss-Tisman reports on a new project based at the University of Vermont. Over the past 20 years, Vermont's maple production has increased by more than four times what it was. Mark Iselhart is part of the Maple Sustainability Indicators Project and says there's really no data on how the new technologies are affecting the forests and the planet. This project is trying to identify the whole system, if you will. You know, not just production, not just the economics, but what are the implications of modern production on the the overall sustainability. Researchers say the 10-year study will help them better understand if increased energy use and the reliance on plastic tubing is sustainable. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Howard Weiss-Tisman. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Martinez. Scientists think that when it comes to global heat, 2023 will be one for the record books. Temperatures around the world were extremely hot, but will it be the hottest year ever recorded? Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk is here with the answer. Lauren, I'm on the edge of my seat. Where does 2023 rank? Yeah, so there are a few days of December left, of course, but it's virtually certain that 2023 will be the hottest year on record. 
That's in the last century and a half where humans have measured the temperature. And it's likely going back the last 125,000 years where scientists have reconstructed the temperature record. You know, the second half of 2023 had some really hot months globally, like September that pushed it over the top. And this caps what's already a really hot decade. The past eight years have been the hottest eight on record. So is this something that scientists expected or is it something about climate change that's somehow speeding up? Yeah, you know, it's something climate scientists are watching closely. Some say it could be accelerating, but others say, you know, there needs to be more data, more information from future years to say that. I talked to Zeke Hausfather, a climate scientist at Berkeley Earth, which is a nonprofit that analyzes climate trends. And he says a year like this one has a clear link to all the fossil fuels that humans are burning. We know why this is happening. You know, this a year like this would not have occurred without the trillion tons of carbon that we've put into the atmosphere over the last century. Yeah, and we've seen what the world looks like and feels like at these kind of temperatures this year. A lot of disasters. I remember Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona was so hot at one point where it was just insane how hot it was there. Yeah, yeah, that was record breaking. You know, over the summer, Phoenix spent 31 days above 110 degrees. More than 500 people died in the area from heat related causes. But it wasn't alone. You know, China, Southern Europe, Mexico all saw extreme heat waves. And Christy Ebai, who is a scientist at the University of Washington who studies heat, says, you know, that should be a wake up call. The major lesson is how unprepared we are that there are places with heat wave early warning and response systems. They certainly saved lives. They didn't save enough. You know, there were also heat waves in the ocean. In July, the water off Florida hit 100 degrees, which is, you know, hot tub level, basically. Corals really can't survive that temperature, and there was a major die-off on the reef there. Okay, so that's 2023, which is almost over. Can we start a, a clean slate, Lauren, for 2024, or is 2024 going to take over the top spot? You know, there's a decent chance it might take the top spot because right now an El Nino climate pattern is beginning. It basically means a whole bunch of heat that's been stored in the ocean gets released into the atmosphere. So El Nino years are hot years, and this is a strong El Nino. But even if next year doesn't take that top spot, you know, scientists say this trend will continue, like Tessa Hill, who is a marine scientist at the University of California, Davis. If we don't change things, if we keep going on the trajectory we're going, we will look back at 2023 and think of it as, you know, remember that year that wasn't so bad. She says, you know, every little bit that humans can do to cut greenhouse gas emissions and reduce the use of fossil fuels will help slow this trend. And there is still time to do that. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. Lauren, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, this has been the most chaotic year for student loan borrowers in the history of the federal loan program. Experts say 2024 may not be much better. It's 7.50. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Overcast and windy today with rain likely throughout the day. It'll be in the upper 40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the mid-20s and the showers may continue. Tomorrow, we end the week with a cloudy day in the mid-40s. There's a chance of more showers. It's 43 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Asma Khalid. Southeast Asia's famed Mekong River is under threat. Chinese dams upriver and climate change are partly to blame, but dams downriver are also having an effect. And some countries are starting to respond. Cambodia recently announced it was scrapping plans for two new dams. But the question is, is it enough to save the river's biodiversity? NPR's Michael Sullivan reports. Khao Praya is a small island in the middle of the Mekong in northern Cambodia, accessible only by a rickety single-car ferry. It's a remote stretch of muddy brown river where residents eke out a living growing vegetables and fishing. And last year came the biggest fish story of them all. We caught it at about four in the afternoon and got it to the boat about five hours later. I thought it was about 80 kilograms, but when I finally saw it up close, I said, oh my God, it is so big. How big? The giant stingray Multone and his crew caught weighed in at 661 pounds, the largest freshwater fish ever recorded. And when Chia Sela got a phone call alerting her to the catch, she jumped in a car immediately for the seven-hour drive from the capital, Phnom Penh. If we don't go immediately, I'm afraid that the fisherman, uh, he decide to sell. Because big fish can mean big money if cut up and sold in the local market. Sela is with the Wonders of the Mekong Project, funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development. She paid the fisherman for the stingray once she got there. Then it was time to name her, an auspicious name. And I just check uh, the calendar. It's the full moon day. Okay, so uh, I name her Boramai. Boramai, or full moon in Khmer. She and her team measured it, weighed it, tagged it, and then she and about a dozen others gently eased the huge creature back into the current and released her. Bye-bye. But it wasn't really goodbye, because Boramai is now in the system. This fish was tagged with an acoustic tag that emits a ping. And so we've been able to track the movement 
of the world's largest freshwater fish for the last year and learn about its behavior. That's fish biologist Zeb Hogan of the University of Nevada, Reno, and the leader of the Wonders of the Mekong Project. This area, it's not only home to the giant freshwater stingray, it's home to other critically endangered species as well. It's home to the last population of Irrawaddy dolphin, giant turtles, giant Mekong catfish, seven-stripe barb. So these are critically endangered fish. This is the only place in the world where all of these endangered species occur together. And that makes the Cambodian government's decision to cancel two proposed mainstream dams so important. One would have been not far downriver from here. The bad news? The government of neighboring Laos plans another, the Punoi Dam, not far upstream. If the Punoi Dam is built, it is the death knell for the Mekong fishery. Brian Eiler is director of the Stimson Center's Southeast Asia program and the author of Last Days of the Mighty Mekong. This won't be a gradual loss situation. It's going to be quick. The, the fishery will collapse. Tens of millions of people who get their food from the river are going to suffer immediately. It's just the absolute wrong place to build a Mekong mainstream dam. He says that's because the dam will severely restrict access to Cambodia's Tonlesap Lake, the so-called beating heart of the lower Mekong ecosystem. The rule of thumb with building dams in the Mekong is that the closer they are to the Tonlesap Lake, the more impactful they're going to be. And that's because tens of millions of fish move in and out of the lake each year. It is the world's largest migration of, of animals. You just can't see it because it's underwater. And a large portion of that migration is going to pass through where this Punoi Dam is being built. Or not pass through, he says, since no fish ladders or other mitigation efforts will be nearly effective enough, he says, to allow that many fish to migrate successfully. The community leader here, fisherman Pengbun, is concerned too. We're sitting in a small boat next to one of the floating receivers used to track the fish, right about where he thinks Boramai could be lurking below. We have to be worried about three things. The first is the dam, the second is climate change, and the third is people. More people also means more pressure on the river. And Laos's plan to lift itself out of poverty by using hydropower to become the battery of Southeast Asia doesn't seem to be working, with the country sinking deeper into debt, even as it continues to build more dams. Brian Eiler says the Puanoi Dam won't help. There are forces at work within Thailand making a case to the new government there as to why this is a really bad idea. And note I said Thailand and not Laos because Thailand is the major purchaser of power from this dam and it's it's going to light up shopping malls in Bangkok for you know the death of the Mekong fishery. And Thailand already has an ample energy surplus, he says, but has already signed power purchase agreements with Laos for two more dams on the Mekong including one just above the World Heritage Site of Luang Prabang that he says will essentially turn that stretch of the Mekong into a lake. Pianporn Dite is Southeast Asia campaign director for the advocacy group International Rivers. So I would say that, yeah, anything can happen anytime, but I think more and more people are asking critical questions about legitimacy of signing new power purchase agreement with Mekong hydropower dams. Neither the Lao government nor the Thai developer responded to queries about the Punoi Dam, and a spokesman for the Mekong River Commission says the proposal is still in its early stages. 
Chiese La of the Wonders of the Mekong Project hopes that's as far as it gets and hopes the title of Brian Eiler's book, Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, is wrong. We try to make everyone understand about the value of the Mekong River. I believe that it's not the last day of the Mekong. And it might not be the last days of record-breaking fish either. Locals claim they've seen a stingray even bigger than Boramai. Further proof the river is incredibly resilient, at least for now. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Kalprea, Cambodia. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Martinez. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Pro-Palestinian protesters briefly blocked roads to airports in New York and Los Angeles yesterday, snarling traffic amid holiday travel. It's Thursday, December 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, there are rising concerns about disease outbreaks in Gaza. Also this hour. What's happening now is disgraceful. To have a policy that invites you know, hundreds of thousands to come into our southern border wrong. Representatives for communities in southern Texas say the federal government should do more to curb the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. from Mexico. Plus, Massachusetts has failed to collect millions of dollars in fines for keeping subsidized housing units vacant. My understanding is that there was an antiquated system by which, you know, one system didn't talk to the other system. Bruins win, rain today and near 50. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met Mexico's president yesterday to talk about immigration. Federal agents have encountered about 2.5 million migrants at the southern border this year. NPR's Jasmine Garst says the Mexican leader expressed his views to the U.S. delegation. President Lopez Obrador has said he's willing to work with the U.S., but yesterday he reiterated his belief that deterrence alone at the border will not work. He wants the U.S. to address the root causes of immigration, like poverty and politics. He's been calling for the U.S. to ease sanctions on Cuba and on Venezuela, Venezuela being one of the countries where many of the migrants are coming from. NPR's Jasmine Garst reporting. Ukraine says a commercial vessel in the Black Sea has struck a Russian mine, injuring two crew members. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Warsaw that trade routes through the Black Sea have become more dangerous since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost two years ago. The State Border Guard Service of Ukraine says a bulk carrier flying the Panamanian flag was heading toward Ukraine's southwestern coast, reportedly to pick up grain sent down from Ukrainian ports on the Danube River. Both Ukraine and Russia have mined the Black Sea, but Ukrainian authorities say the vessel hit a Russian mine. 
A fire broke out on the upper deck. The captain ran the ship aground. Russia has threatened ships in Ukrainian waters of the Black Sea since July, when Moscow pulled out of a safe passage grain deal brokered by the United Nations. Ukraine has found alternate routes, including its river ports on the Danube, to transport grain. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Warsaw. Fighting continues today in Gaza as the Israeli military moves into Palestinian refugee camps in central Gaza. Relief agencies say there's still no safe place in Gaza for Palestinian civilians to go. Colorado Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert has switched her candidacy from the state's third congressional district to the fourth. Aspen Public Radio's Carolyn Giannis has more. Boebert won re-election in 2022 beating Democrat Adam Frisch of Aspen by only 546 votes, one of the closest races in the nation. So far, Frisch, who's running for the seat again, has outraised Boebert by more than $5 million. In a statement announcing her candidacy change, Boebert said she was confident the 3rd District would stay Republican and took a swipe at Frisch's wealthy hometown. And the Aspen donors, George Soros, and Hollywood actors that are trying to buy this seat? Well they can go pound sand. The 4th District leans much more heavily conservative and has been held since 2015 by Ken Buck, who's retiring at the end of his term. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Yanez. You're listening to NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been one year since the state's fair share amendment took effect. That's also known as the millionaire's tax. As WBOR's Walter Wuthman reports, supporters are celebrating the first year as a success. Voters narrowly approved the 4% surtax on incomes over $1 million last November. State officials estimate the tax will generate over $1.5 billion in new revenue this year. Andrew Farnitano, spokesman for the Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition, says that money is going to transportation and public education. Money from Fair Share is going to provide free school meals for all students in the state. It's going to support free community college. It's supporting financial aid for low-income and middle-class students at our public colleges. Critics argue the tax is driving people from Massachusetts to states like Florida and New Hampshire. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A bill that would eliminate or expunge some records of juvenile offenders is under consideration on Beacon Hill. State Senator Cynthia Stone Cream says clearing juvenile records will reduce the chance that even a sealed record could prevent people from getting jobs or going to school. It would exclude non-convictions, non-adjudications from the eligibility restrictions if a court determines that a young person is not guilty of an offense. The bill would prohibit law enforcement from sending the fingerprint information obtained through juvenile arrests to the FBI. Cream says crimes like sex offenses or convictions for offenses that resulted in deaths would not be eligible for expungement. A Boston city planner known for his work championing the big dig has died. Steve Coyle passed away at his home in Virginia earlier this month. According to the Boston Globe, Coyle was responsible for the redevelopment of the Charlestown Navy Yard. He also located the site for the New England Holocaust Memorial near Faneuil Hall. A funeral mass will be said in Waltham later today. Coyle was 78. The Southeastern Regional Transit Authority is going fare-free in the new year. That agency serves Fall River, New Bedford, and several other South Coast communities. The agency says it'll use a state grant to cover fares through June 30th. It's 8.06.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. The Bruins' four-game losing streak ended last night in Buffalo. They beat the Sabres 4-1. Later this morning, Boston College hosts SMU in the Wasabi Fenway Bowl at Fenway Park. Kickoff is at 11. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Celtics and the Detroit Pistons. Detroit has lost an NBA record 27 games in a row. Rain for a good part of the day today. It'll be near 50. Overcast tonight, and we may see a lingering shower. Temperatures will be in the 40s. Cloudy with another chance for rain tomorrow, mid-40s. More rain possible on Saturday, otherwise cloudy in the upper 40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. In Gaza, access to food, sanitation, and clean water is scarce as the war between Hamas and Israel rages on. The World Health Organization warns disease may eventually kill more people than actual combat if the health system is not fixed. You've got NPR's Ari Daniel here to walk us through what's being done to try to stay ahead of an outbreak. Uh, Ari, first off, can you give us a snapshot of infectious disease in Gaza right now? What's it looking like? Sure, it's bad, and it may well get worse. The WHO says rates are, quote, soaring. Here's one example, a more than 100,000 cases of diarrhea with rates among children that are 25 times higher than before the war. Our producer, Anas Baba, spoke to pediatrician Tahrir al-Sheikh, who's seen some brutal cases of diarrhea. I treated a four-month-old baby who had 20 bowel movements in a day along with a torrent of respiratory diseases. I've had cases that didn't respond to any treatment. The WHO says there are also numerous cases of meningitis, rashes, scabies, lice, and chickenpox. Right, wow, so really bad. Um, How have things gotten so bad? Well, Gaza's health infrastructure has really crumbled amidst Israel's bombardment and ground offensive. The WHO says more than half of Gaza's hospitals are no longer functioning. And that's because Israel has accused Hamas of harboring fighters and weapons in and around those hospitals and under them in tunnels, putting them in the line of fire. Plus, the conditions inside Gaza are a perfect storm for the spread of infectious disease. There is intense overcrowding, colder winter weather, and a lack of clean water, sanitation, and proper nutrition, which are services that are difficult to secure under Israel's near total siege of Gaza. Here's Amber Alian, deputy program manager for Doctors Without Borders in the Palestinian territories. It's just sort of a a cauldron of possibility of infectious disease. This really just is an infectious disaster in waiting. And that brings us back, I suppose, to the World Health Organization's prediction that disease could endanger more lives in military action. Exactly. And it's why global health groups are racing to ramp up disease surveillance efforts. What did that look like in Gaza before the war? Pretty good, actually, despite the Israeli blockade. But the war's compromised all that. Here's Dr. Asheikh again. 
We used to culture bacteria in Gaza, prescribe medication based on the results. Now, we can't do cultures or anything, and the infections are spreading. So then what are public health professionals doing to try and catch an outbreak before it even takes off? Well, a WHO official recently traveled to Gaza with rapid tests for hepatitis and cholera. They want to resuscitate one or two of the local laboratories that used to do pathogen screening. Negotiations are also underway to bring a mobile lab into Gaza or ferry specimens out to Egypt for testing. For now, Rick Brennan, a regional emergency director with the WHO, told me it's fortunate that terrible diseases like measles or cholera haven't yet surfaced. To be honest, I'm grateful that we've got to this point. We've got increased rates, but we haven't had a deadly outbreak yet. Whether that good fortune lasts isn't certain, but early detection will be critical to keeping potential disease outbreaks contained before they lead to further suffering. That is NPR's Ari Daniel. Ari, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, A. More than 40 million federal student loan borrowers had an eventful year. It began with a promise of forgiveness, then they were unforgiven, and now some may be forgiven again. The Supreme Court overturned President Biden's loan forgiveness plan, so the administration then tried another way. Our colleague Steve Inskeep spoke with NPR education reporter Corey Turner, who has covered these twists and turns throughout the year. Good morning, Corey. Hey, Steve. So this loan forgiveness is still alive? I like to think of it as a sort of slow, shambling zombie that isn't going to reach everybody, but it just might sneak up on you. (laughs) I will forgive. (laughs) Go on. So, yes, to be clear, President Biden's big official plan to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans, that is very dead. The U.S. Supreme Court said he cannot go that big. But what the Education Department is doing now is they're going through a pretty tedious process. It's called negotiated rulemaking to see... Well, how big can he go? Can he legally cancel the debts of borrowers with really old loans? Or maybe for borrowers who now owe more than they initially borrowed? Okay. And we'll see what happens there. But I do want to be super clear here, Steve. From the beginning, the Biden administration has done a ton of other things that have led to nearly $132 billion in loan forgiveness for more than 3.6 million borrowers. Oh, wow. This is interesting. And it's a reminder the Supreme Court didn't say as a policy matter, you can't forgive loans. They said you have to do things within current law as we interpret it. So where is that forgiveness coming from? So this forgiveness is coming from Biden administration efforts to essentially overhaul a handful of old and pretty broken programs. They include public service loan forgiveness, as well as serious mismanagement of federal income-driven repayment plans and a deeply flawed system that was hurting borrowers with severe disabilities. The Biden administration has overhauled all three. That $132 billion in loan forgiveness, I think we can agree objectively, is an enormous amount of loan forgiveness, Steve. The challenge, I think, politically for President Biden ending 2023 is it still feels small to a lot of borrowers because it's not nearly as much as he promised. Well, what is happening now with people who got to pause their student loan debt payments during the pandemic and have had now to return to payment? So that is my second takeaway. They are coming back to a very different repayment system. And that's largely because of a new income-based repayment plan the Biden administration is rolling out called SAVE. 
It is more flexible and more generous than any previous repayment plan. It keeps interest from blowing up a borrower's loan balance, number one. In July of next year, it's going to cut undergraduate borrowers' payments in half. In fact, it is so generous that Republicans have been fighting to shut it down. They point to one estimate that says the SAVE plan could cost as much as $475 billion over the next 10 years. President Biden has said, though, even if Congress does send him a bill to kill SAVE, which at least the Senate seems unlikely to do, he'll veto it. All of this is so complicated that even with your clear explanations, (laughs) I struggle to follow it. What if I'm a borrower and I want to call my servicer and figure out what I can do? This is my third takeaway, and that is that our student loan system right now, at least as borrowers experience it, is a total mess. My advice to borrowers is don't call unless you absolutely have to. And the reason for all of this is because there was a budget fight a year ago, and Congress refused to give the Ed Department any additional funding for this past year. Now, until the pandemic payment pause ended, that was sort of an abstract problem. Sure. But now it is a full-blown funding crisis. Just think about this for a second. The Education Department right now has to help 28 million borrowers make their way into this funnel of repayment, also while implementing a brand new repayment plan and while conducting a massive retroactive review to fix past mistakes in borrower accounts. Mm. And we're also seeing cracks in the department's ability to do other things because it is so stretched. The FAFSA form is late. Oh, this has to do with college financial aid, okay. Basically, a whole bunch of things the Ed Department is doing right now, the department is struggling to do. As one more example that comes to mind from our own reporting, my colleague Sequoia Carrillo has covered a new law to allow couples who join their loans while married to now separate them. It's a big deal, especially for women in abusive relationships who end up trapped by their abuser's student loans. Now, this law passed more than a year ago. President Biden signed it. To this day, there is still no program. I reached out to the education department just a couple days ago, and they told me they just don't have the money to implement it right now. Corey, thanks for the update. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's NPR's Corey Turner, who has covered student loans all through this year. Curious what piqued people's curiosity this year? Well, you can Google it. Google's top global searches for 2023 are out, and they tell us a lot about what we've been through this year. The top trending new search was the Israel-Hamas war, followed by that Titanic-bound submersible that imploded in June. The year in search also reminds us of last summer's odd cinematic showdown between Barbie, the most Googled movie. Hi, Barbie! And the second most searched movie of the year, Oppenheimer. When I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world. The most Googled person was Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bill safety who had a heart attack during a game, then went on to make a full recovery. Friend star Matthew Perry topped the list of most searched celebrity deaths. I'm not great at the advice. Can I interest you in a sarcastic comment? He was followed up by Tina Turner. And Irish singer Sinead O'Connor. 
Google also gives us a roundup of this year's most Googled recipes, with the Korean rice dish bibimbap at the top, followed by espeto, a skewered fish dish from southern Spain. Among U.S. searches, the Roman Empire topped one trends list for the year, and no, it wasn't about gladiators. (laughs) It's actually about how often men think about ancient Rome, which turns out is apparently a lot. Are you not entertained? Oh yes, believe me, we are entertained. So if you're looking for me, gonna pull it up, cause I'm a celebrity, go ahead and Google me. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the New York Times has become the first company to push back against the threat of artificial intelligence to the news industry. It filed suit against OpenAI and Microsoft yesterday over their use of New York Times stories to train chatbots. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, Gather Around, Let's Feast, and The Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Native people have been historically excluded from so many professions and none more so than the ranks of federal judges. Now, two Native women have been confirmed as judges on the federal bench, one in Oklahoma and one in Hawaii. Advocates say it's a huge step forward in representation. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Rock band Aerosmith is hoping to resume its farewell tour by next summer. They were supposed to play The Garden on New Year's Eve, but the tour was postponed in September after lead singer Steven Tyler severely injured his vocal cords. Aerosmith guitarist Joe Perry tells the Boston Globe the band may wind up playing in Boston next New Year's Eve. Rainy and windy today with a high near 50. More showers likely tonight as it falls to the mid-40s. Cloudy tomorrow with a good chance of rain again. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. I'm Ewan Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadil. For the last several years, renowned chef Jose Andres has run toward the screams. After floods, earthquakes, in the middle of wars, he's often among the first to show up, scrambling to feed people through the World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit food aid organization he founded some years ago. Last year, Andres was on the front lines in Ukraine. This year, it's Gaza, a conflict zone he says is unlike any other he's seen. In Ukraine, you always can retreat to the safety of the areas that is not really an active front line. The issue in Gaza is the Palestinian people. They don't have anywhere else to go. They don't have anywhere else to retreat. They cannot run any further. As the founder of World Central Kitchen, I mean, it's an organization that is about feeding people living through the worst days of their lives. What do you think about this war strategy of cutting Gaza off from food and water for weeks on end? I mean, before the aid trucks were even allowed in, and now at this point, many aid organizations saying this is not enough. So what I will say that in situations like this, the best is that everybody recognizes that food and water is a universal right. The best is that no children, no woman, nobody should be going through the pains of war, that nobody should be shooting civilians. And when I mean nobody is everybody. We need to remember how this latest issue began. This was a terrorist attack by Hamas into the southern part of Israel. We cannot forget that. We cannot use finger pointing at the other side without taking our own responsibility for our own actions and doings. Many Palestinians have been able to speak to, and many tell me, I don't have an issue with Israeli people. I don't have an issue with Jewish people. I only want the best for my family, for my children, to have a future better than mine. That's why I always say we need to believe in longer tables. What is good for me must be good for others. People in Gaza, beyond the incredible danger of the conflict, they've been cut off from food, water, fuel, and electricity for many weeks. That has led to people starving. A new UN report says half a million people are now starving in Gaza. You know, one of the things the Israeli government will say that cutting off basic essentials was part of making sure it didn't fall into the hands of the wrong people, in this case, Hamas. And their interception of these essentials is what keeps Hamas going. Based on what you saw, were these basic essentials getting to where they needed to go? By my understanding, for what I saw in the three days it was there, by all the information I had by the team members, not only World Central Kitchen, by other organizations. I will say that the very big majority of all these goods are going to the people. In Ukraine, we had the situation that we had to be delivering some of the aid of World Central Kitchen to a church that then the priest was going to deliver to the Russian troops. Mm-hmm. We did that because in the exchange, they liberated 17 Ukrainians that were under Russian command, and they liberated them in exchange of the food. Uh, I do believe that the vast majority, 98% of the people in Palestine are people that want peace, are people that don't want mayhem, are people that are trying to provide for their own. So I will say that this is what humanitarian organizations should be concentrated and that everybody should be allowing. We need to be feeding, bringing water, food and medicines to everybody in need. And let the people doing war handling that on their own. I'm not going to get in the politics if it's the right or the wrong thing to 
do. What we cannot be doing is starving or killing many only because we are trying to oppress the few. Going into Gaza, though, is incredibly dangerous. More than 100 UN workers have been killed since the start of this, more than any other time since the UN has been recording the killing of their aid workers. There are strikes across the Palestinian enclave, ground operations. The vast majority of the more than 20,000 people killed have been women and children. Can World Central Kitchen actually work safely in Gaza? Well, listen, obviously these numbers are staggering. Um, Besides, behind those numbers are the names and the faces and the families uh, on every one of those people. World Central Kitchen, we lost six volunteers of World Central Kitchen in Ukraine. As a cook, as a as a chef, when I founded this organization, I never expected that this will happen. And I almost wanted to pull World Central Kitchen immediately out of Ukraine. But the locals told me, Jose, you cannot leave. We need you. We need your organization. I have to ask about when we were doing research for this interview, a recent report from Bloomberg that says that World Central Kitchen, that you look the other way when it comes to concerns around the safety of World Central Kitchen staff, uh, volunteers when deploying to these conflict and disaster zones. And I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about that report. Well, thank you for asking for this. Listen, we don't push anybody to go. Uh, Only goes who wants to go. And when you go to a hurricane, there are electric cables down. We go to war zones that sometimes a missile or comes down. I think with humanitarian aid, there are risks. Obviously, it's people that maybe they don't feel safe doing this job, but then they shouldn't be in these kind of humanitarian uh, situations. But from there to say that Hussein Andres puts people in danger, I never be able to tell anybody to do what I'm not willing to do on my own. On Gaza, for my final question, if the rate of this aid remains the same, the bottlenecks, what do you think will happen for the 2.3 million people Palestinians in Gaza, the vast majority, 85% displaced. What happens to them if it doesn't get in faster? Let's hope the stability and tomorrow the ceasefire or a total temporary peace is achieved. But still the need will be huge for weeks until we stabilize the entire situation with food, water, and medicines. Remembering that we have many hospitals that they are very few remaining, the majority. they are in very difficult conditions. So more is more right now. That's Chef Jose Andres. He just returned from Gaza, where his organization is providing aid. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Massachusetts finds communities that allow subsidized apartments to go vacant, but WBUR has found that the state often fails to collect those fines. It's 829. WBUR's City Space is out with its lineup for the first few months of the new year. It includes conversations with Chef Jack Zhang, former NPR host Michelle Norris, and the Moth Story Slam. Check out the calendar and get your tickets by visiting wbur.org events. 
When an Illinois drug factory shut down this year, it worsened some drug shortages and left hospitals scrambling. We actually got an email from our representative and he just said, we learned that we're closing, everyone has to leave today. So it was very abrupt. Now it's reopening under a new owner. More on what causes generic drug shortages and what's being done about it on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at four on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration and Mexico's government say yesterday's talks on border security and migration were productive. The meetings in Mexico City included Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Mexico's president. Neither side is offering details on what steps might be taken to try to reduce the flow of migrants to the U.S. southern border. Thousands continue arriving each day. The Texas National Guard and the group Human Rights Watch are reacting to a video showing Guard members appearing to ignore cries for help from a woman trying to cross the Rio Grande with her child. Both eventually made it back to shore. Pablo De La Rosa with Texas Public Radio reports. In a statement, officials with the Texas Military Department said they saw, quote, no signs of incapacitation. The woman, who appears to be in danger of drowning, can be heard saying in the video that she could no longer walk. Eyewitnesses said both woman and child, quote, went under for a moment as guards watched. Ari Sawyer is U.S. border researcher for Human Rights Watch. Um, ignoring that woman and her baby was wrong on just a basic human level. At what point would they have intervened when her baby was already drowning? Two migrants drowned in the Rio Grande River earlier this month. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The state inspector general says the MBTA did not do a good job in finding a dispatcher for its police department. In a new report, the IG says he's concerned that favoritism may have influenced the decision to hire IXP Corporation for the services. The report finds the MBTA could not show that the selection process was fair because of poor record keeping. The IG's office says the T should keep better records and should also consider more applicants in the future. Researchers from UMass Boston are starting a new program to measure flooding in the city during storms. The data should help the city plan for future flooding as climate change brings higher seas to Boston. More now from WBUR's Barbara Moran. The researchers are putting instruments in the harbor and along the coast to measure waves, currents, and water levels during storms. They're also working with citizen groups to measure inland flooding. UMass Boston professor Paul Kirshen says the data will eventually become a tool for emergency management. Storm is coming. You can call up this data and see what's going on. And then hopefully you can also get a run of the flood model that's been set up for this particular storm. And it'll actually tell you in detail what the flooding is going to be from that storm. The new instruments should be gathering data by the end of January. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. State wildlife officials say a program that allows deer hunters to donate animals they kill to families in need is growing quickly. It's called Hunters Share the Harvest. Martin Fian is a biologist with Mass Wildlife. He says the donated deer go through the same processing hunters have to follow for food safety. Fian says last year the program produced 1,200 meals. 
This year, we're already beyond 12,000 uh, folks who have received it. Uh, venison as part of this program, and I suspect that we will at least add another about 6,000 uh, meals this year. So this year, I expect us to exceed probably 18,000 meals by the end of the season. The hunting season ends this weekend. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. The Bruins topped the Sabres 4-1 last night in Buffalo. The Bees return home Saturday to play the New Jersey Devils. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will face the Detroit Pistons. Cloudy with a high near 50 today. Rain is likely, along with gusty winds. Mid-40s tonight and the showers continue. Cloudy with a chance of rain again tomorrow. High temperatures will be in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The New York Times is taking chat GPT to court. The paper filed a federal lawsuit yesterday alleging that OpenAI, that's the creator of ChatGPT, made the chatbot powerful by using millions of Times articles without permission and without payment. It's the latest copyright infringement case filed against OpenAI in recent months. We're joined now by NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen. So the New York Times, Bobby, is the first major media publisher to sue OpenAI. Microsoft was also named. They were big backer of OpenAI. What's the New York Times want to get out of this lawsuit? Yeah, well, let's start at the beginning here. Lawyers for the Times say OpenAI fed ChatGPT millions of stories from the Times website. Now, OpenAI did this because that's how ChatGPT works, right? It swallows vast amounts of text from the internet and uses that as data to make ChatGPT smarter. The problem is that some of that text is copyrighted. And for months, OpenAI and the Times have tried to hammer out some kind of licensing deal where OpenAI would pay the paper for use of its articles, but those talks have collapsed over how much money OpenAI should pay to the newspaper. This is the first copyright lawsuit OpenAI has seen. What have they said in response to this one? Yeah, an OpenAI spokesperson said the company was, quote, surprised and disappointed by the lawsuit. The company says it respects the rights of content creators and is committed to making sure they benefit from new AI technology. In the past, OpenAI executives have defended the company's massive scraping of the internet under something that is known as fair use doctrine. It's basically a legal theory that says in certain circumstances, like in academic research or commentary or parody, copyrighted material can be used without permission. But the Times says fair use does not apply here. In fact, the Times says OpenAI has become a direct competitor of the Times' website. And the lawyers point out that ChatGPT is often citing the Times incorrectly, claiming the paper reported things it never has reported, which, of course, is a huge problem for the paper's credibility and reputation. This sounds like it could be a massive game changer. I mean, how could this lawsuit maybe reshape the world of digital publishing? 
Yeah, it's fair to say the entire digital publishing industry is on edge about generative AI tools like ChatGPT that can create something new based on these big data sets. There are fears about job loss, fears over AI turbocharging misinformation online, and a concern that AI companies like OpenAI are becoming popular on the backs of copyright holders. Prominent writers, comedians, and Getty Images have all sued AI companies over this. And some publishers like the Associated Press and German media giant Axel Springer have gone the opposite way and hammered out licensing deals with OpenAI. But the Times has chosen another path, and this legal fight could have repercussions for both the AI industry and online journalism. How so? Well, the Times is asking for ChatGPT's enormous data set to be destroyed since it contains copyrighted material that the paper says was used illegally. OpenAI could then be forced by the court to try to recreate these huge data sets using only work it is authorized to use. And for tools like ChatGPTA, the data is everything. I mean, data is gold, right? That's how it generates all its responses. So this would be an incredibly disruptive, if not impossible task for the company. Other AI companies with similar business models will be watching this lawsuit closely, as will other publishers whose work has been harvested without permission by ChatGPT. That's NPR's Bobby Allen covering the tech world for us. Bobby, thanks. Thank you, A. We want to note that Microsoft is a financial supporter of NPR. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Mexico's president yesterday to talk about the U.S. southern border, where up to 10,000 migrants are being arrested each day. Congressman Vicente Gonzalez is a Democrat representing a Texas district that hugs the border. With a caravan of several thousand migrants heading toward the United States, I asked him about his call for greater scrutiny of asylum seekers. We need to raise the credible fear standard at the border, and we need to have expedited hearings, and we need to have expedited removals, and we need to enforce American immigration laws in a humane way. We're not going to rip children out of mothers' arms and separate families like what happened under the Trump administration, but we do need to enforce American immigration laws at the border. What is it exactly that you want from President Biden from his White House? Well, what I've been proposing is something called the Safe Zone Act, and this could be implemented through executive order that creates safe zones in places like Guatemala, Panama, Colombia, and we process asylum claims 1,500 miles, 2,000, 3,000 miles away from our border. It eliminates the cartels out of the equation. It takes the pressure off our border, and it's really the most humane way uh, to deal with migrants that are making this long, very dangerous, difficult trek up to our southern border. What response have you gotten from the Biden White House to your concerns? Recently, there's been some interest. Um, but in order to really do it, you really got to put your foot down and say, OK, anybody who doesn't go through this process is going to be returned home. You are a Democrat, Congressman. And President Biden is also, of course, a Democrat. I am curious if you look back broadly on the last three years, how would you grade his handling of border and immigration policies? I would give him a C minus. Okay, so passing. Passing, yeah. I mean, there's order uh, to some extent, and it's dealt with humanely. But simply said, we need to enforce our laws. We need to scrutinize asylum seekers further. Congressman, it seems like getting anything done on immigration is very challenging uh, in Congress, and it has been for some years. But it also isn't clear to me that there is consensus within either party about what to do. Within your party, the Democratic Party, do you feel that there is consensus on what to do about border policy? 
Well, I think that may be the problem, right? We have extremes on both sides. We have folks who think it should be really easy to come to our southern border and ask for asylum and get into the country. And then you have folks who feel the way I do that think that we should be much stricter on our southern border. Mm. But clearly what's happening now is disgraceful. And to have a policy that invites you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to come into our southern border, I don't care how you look at it, it's just wrong. And I know it upsets people in my party when I say some of these things. Listen, my heart breaks when I see these people. I know they're coming from the poorest, most difficult corners of the world. But our asylum laws have been in place for many, many, many years. Yet we've never had the issues that we've had the last six or seven years Mm -hmm. ever in our history. I've been on the border all my life. I've never seen this mass migration coming across our border and being processed and released, ever. What changed? Well, I think the enforcement and the way we deal with these policies have changed. And it's not a Democratic or Republican problem. It's an American problem that needs to be resolved in a bipartisan way. This is real life, and we're dealing with this on an everyday basis. And we would appreciate more support from the federal government and really implementing the laws that we have now and enforcing them. That's Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez of Texas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a program that explores and addresses the sometimes traumatic relationship between emotions and money. Overcast and windy today with rain likely throughout the day. It'll be in the upper 40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the mid-20s and the showers may continue. Tomorrow, we end the week with a cloudy day in the mid-40s. There's a chance of more showers. It's 43 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. The Massachusetts Brewers Guild is taking stock of the local industry's past year and looking ahead to 2024. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. Brewers Guild Executive Director Katie Stinchin says five breweries opened in 2023, but seven shut their doors. We're seeing record-breaking inflation, which has risen the cost and everything from having your lights on to your water, your cardboard, your ingredients, health care. And we are experiencing some closures as a result of that. Other challenges include an influx of out-of-state beers. I think we really need to drill down into our roots of innovation and figure out what our next style is going to be. I know New England IPA really drove a lot of people into the category and masses. What's our next move? The Guild is also working on bills so breweries can self-distribute and sell at farmer's markets. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The Martha's Vineyard Times will soon be under new ownership for the first time in nearly two decades. The publication reports it's being bought by West Tisbury resident Steve Bernier. He's also the longtime owner of Kronig's Markets. Bernier says he will not lay off any employees as a result of the sale. The deal is expected to be finalized over the weekend. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. 
Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts has fined almost every housing agency in the state for leaving subsidized apartments empty without permission. That's according to public records obtained by W.B. But as W.B. Todd Wallach reports, most of the fines were never enforced, including in a small community in central Massachusetts. Gardner Housing Authority Director Krishana Murray shows me an apartment in a 15-story tower called the High Rise. State-funded public housing is meant for low-income people who need a home. But this unit has sat empty for a year, despite the fact that homeless shelters are overflowing. A small kitchen here, when you make your way in, essentially you're looking at a large room. More than 2,000 public housing units like this one are empty across the state including nearly 70 in Gardner alone. But state records show Gardner and many other local housing agencies have left units empty without permission. Murray takes us to her office downstairs to explain. Come on in. Under state rules, local housing agencies are supposed to fill units within 60 days or give the state a good reason why they can't. If you're not communicating that, then the state looks at it like, hey, you know, you guys are goofing around over there. Why aren't you filling these units? When agencies can't fill units right away, they can apply for a waiver. The database asks you to provide the following information. When was the unit vacated? A drop-down menu as to why the unit Murray says Gardner sometimes skipped that step because the agency was short-staffed. There was also some confusion about the process. Murray didn't think they needed waivers for vacancies caused by a massive electric project the state had already approved. Although the waiver had not been put in, there were meetings held every, every week or two. There was consistent communication. Gardner wasn't the only housing agency that failed to fill out the form when it left a unit sitting empty. Records obtained by WBUR show from 2019 to 2022, the state fined Gardner and other local housing agencies more than $4 million for leaving units vacant without a waiver. Boston alone was fined more than $600,000. Waltham was fined $110,000, and Gardner was fined $74,000. But the fines were largely meaningless because the state says it never collected most of the money. Most of the fines were forgiven for Gardner. Boston wouldn't agree to an interview, but a spokesman said in an email the city wasn't aware of all the fines. And Waltham Housing Director John Gollinger says he wasn't sure his agency ever paid a penny. I don't believe we've paid anything yet. They may have deducted it, but I don't know. State housing officials say they collected less than one quarter of all the fines assessed from 2019 to 2022. Ed Augustus is the state secretary of housing. Yeah, my understanding is that there was a antiquated system by which, you know, one system didn't talk to the other system, so the fines weren't actually being deducted from their subsidies. The fines are one of the few ways the state can push agencies to fill empty subsidized housing units or flag problems preventing them from being leased. Augusta says the state plans to make sure the fines are enforced going forward. Primarily, it's because we want to make sure that we know when units are offline, they're offline for good reason, so it's an accountability mechanism. But he says the state won't bother trying to collect fines from years ago. You know, the goal shouldn't be, hey, we want to collect X number of fines, or the goal is to fix problems that are keeping units vacant. Not everyone is happy about the change. 
Waltham Housing Director John Gollinger worries the fines are counterproductive. Withholding money from agencies that are already short-staffed and struggling to fill vacancies. Taking resources from agencies that need them to ensure um, a rapid turnaround, that's not the way I would go. But the state says it wants to make sure public housing doesn't sit idle when so many people desperately need a home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on Taiwan's accusations that China is mounting a disinformation campaign in its presidential election, plus efforts to stop the deforestation of the Amazon in Brazil. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event, happening now. More at circlefurniture.com and Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So make your year-end contribution by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back from Mexico, where he spoke with officials about slowing the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. Health officials say they're worried about the risk for disease in Gaza as the war between Israel and Hamas compromises the region's few remaining hospitals. And scientists say 2023 was most likely the hottest year on record, and 2024 is expected to be even hotter. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. Rain and near 50 today, more showers in mid-40s tonight, cloudy with more rain possible tomorrow in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. New Apple Watch sales stopped just before Christmas because of a patent dispute will resume for now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. I'm David Brancaccio. A federal appeals court says Apple Watch models that came off the market the other day can go on sale again, at least for the time being. The watches include health monitoring systems that could infringe on the other guy's patents. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with the details. Yeah, David, that other guy is a California-based company called Massimo. It's a medical device maker. Since 2020, Massimo has been accusing Apple of stealing proprietary technology for reading blood oxygen levels. Now, the long and short of it is that a federal agency ordered Apple to stop selling watches with this disputed technology in it. So last week, Apple took its Series 9 and Ultra 2 watches off shelves, both online and at its physical stores. 
other watches were still available. And frankly, uh, other retailers were still selling the disputed watches too. But now an appeals court is allowing Apple to sell the watches again as well. And tell me more about Massimo's complaint against Apple. Well, it says that Apple knew about Massimo's technology since 2013, hired away some of its employees and recreated that technology. Now, Apple's argument is that it came up with this tech on its own, that it's basic technology that anyone could have figured out. It's not patentable. Apple has made the same argument in another patent dispute over EKG monitoring. This latest dispute went to a jury. The jury deadlocked, and now it's up to a federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. to sort this out, David. Novasafo on the intellectual property beat this morning. Market stock index futures just over a half hour here before stock markets open in earnest. I see Dow futures down a tenth percent. S&P futures are flat. NASDAQ futures are up a quarter of a percent. And here are some other fresh numbers concerning social media firms and profits from targeting the kids market. Harvard School of Public Health finds that last year, social media companies brought in $11 billion in revenue from people under 18. Lawmakers and regulators in Washington are scrutinizing the psychological and other health effects of social media on children and tactics that companies use that some experts see as encouraging overuse. The Harvard researchers accuse the companies of failing to self-regulate. Some states are suing. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Some argue when it comes to money decisions, use your head, not your heart, that emotions get in the way of clear decision-making. Yet emotions and money are often deeply interconnected, right? Chantel Chapman is a financial expert and former mortgage broker who, despite her expertise, didn't have the best relationship with money. She ended up co-creating an educational program focusing on the intersection of money, emotions, and pain. It's called Trauma of Money. Chantel spoke with Marketplace colleague Sabri Benishore. You should know there are references to addiction in the following conversation. How does trauma shape our relationship with money? So we believe at Trauma of Money that any type of trauma that someone experiences has the ability to impact the relationship with money, even if the original trauma had nothing to do with money. At its core, trauma is when something happens or doesn't happen that leaves us feeling unsafe, not secure, or not worthy. And what does money represent in our society? It represents worth and it represents security. You have your own experience with a troubled relationship with money. How did you figure out or make the connection between you know, your relationship with money and your own personal experience of trauma? someone very close to me was going through addiction recovery. And as I was there showing up for them, I started to notice some similarities with the way I was interacting with money and they were the way they were interacting with the substance they were using. Mm. I felt so connected to this person and I was like, wow, like I'm using money and I'm using my lack of boundaries in order to soothe myself. That is essentially my addiction. And I started going to trauma therapy, but then I would bring up money and the trauma therapist would be like, 
willpower, willpower. Like it's almost like they didn't really have any strategies as soon as I brought up money. I wanted to ask you about the idea of generational trauma or societal trauma and how that pops up in an individual's behavior or approach to money. When a brain believes it's in scarcity, the brain reacts in a similar way to a trauma response. So we really look at scarcity as another form of trauma. And let's say your ancestors have experienced extreme scarcity and maybe the children of your great great grandparents watch their parents in extreme scarcity and they learn certain ways to be around money and then they pass that down to their children and pass that down to their children and so you can have trauma and scarcity passed down through nature and nurture and we will often see people interact with their money in the same way that was like a taught pattern through their ancestors. And that taught pattern might have come out of survival at one point. If we are shaped by our experience and the experiences of those around us, how do you get control back? One of the ways to get control back, ironically, is to depersonalize it. And so when we can say something like, whose financial shame is this right now? And we can start to unpack what the source is. We can say, oh, well, you know, some of this is societal trauma. Like we live in an environment where there's a massive wealth gap. You know, there's a lot of economic issues. And there's a lot of stuff going on. So I get that I have individual control to make some change, but also all of this shame and pressure is not mine. And the moment you can start to depersonalize it, you're giving yourself some space to take a different path. Chantal Chapman is a financial trauma researcher and the co-founder of Trauma of Money. Chantal, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's Marketplace's Sabri Beneshore there. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. A wet and windy day today with a good chance of showers all day. Temperatures will rise to near 50. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston. And the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.